Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Book Chat, the new monthly podcast from me, Bobby Palmer, and her, Pandora Sykes, where we each bring a book and we chat. Our one rule is that the books have to be more than two years old. We are recording this before Christmas, but the episode will be dropping on the 1st of January. So to the eager beavers, Happy New Year, and I hope you have a gorgeous hangover today. New Year, new you, or New Year exactly the same you, which is also fine. Thank you so much for the lovely feedback on the last episode where we discussed Tales of the City and Tin Man. One listener was in touch to say that our discussion about Tin Man put her in mind of A Home at the End of the World by Michael Cunningham, which is also about a thruple featuring two young men who are at times lovers, at times friends. And another listener emailed to say that she read all nine Tales of the City books during lockdown, which is an impressive feat. And that apparently the original 93 series that I was wanting to watch is actually on 4OD. So now I know where to find it. And that might be my festive viewing. Pandora, what are you reading right now? I just read Darling by India Knight, which is a modern retelling of The Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I read it all in one evening. I I mainly loved the Radlitz family habit of describing things and people as bonting, good, or not bonting, bad. And it's actually very hard to be bonting. Uh, But my God, the twist got me. I haven't read The Pursuit of Love. If you have... You will know what I mean. How about you? I haven't read The Pursuit of Love, and I love a twist, so uh, I might have to. Uh, I'm currently reading Vesper Flights by Helen MacDonald, who's the author of H's for Hawk. Oh, yeah. So this one's like a a nice, slow, quiet collection of of essays on nature. Uh, There's an essay about nests. There's one about boars and that sort of thing. I don't actually read a lot of nature books, but I do like to at this time of year, probably because it's a bit too cold to actually like go outside. No, I don't read many nature books either. I think I often think they're going to be too slow for me, but maybe that's a good thing. That's what this podcast's all about. It's true. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into the chat, a warning as ever. For those who have not read today's books, this is a meaty book chat, not a book review. So there will be spoilers. Pandora, let's start with the book you've brought to today's hypothetical table. I have with me today, Bobby, Zadie Smith's very first book, White Teeth, written when she was a student at Cambridge University and published in 2002. It's not my favourite Zadie Smith book, that's on beauty, but I chose it because it caused such a splash when it was published 20 years ago. She got this huge advance and... It and she was seen as this brave new dawn of modern contemporary writing. Basically, 20 years on, I wanted an excuse to reread it. And my God, rereading it, I was struck by the ambition 
ambition of it. White Teeth is a pretty difficult book to summarise, but I will give it a go. It's about three families. First, the Joneses, who are half English, half Jamaican. Second family is the Iqbals, a Bangladeshi family. Both the Joneses and the Iqbals live in Wilsdon Green, and the patriarchs of which, Archie and Samad, served in World War II together. The third family is the Chalfins, a white family who meet the other two families when their son Joshua goes to school with Irie Jones and Milat Iqbal. It's this polyvocal epic set across three decades. We leave them in 1999, just before the turn of the millennium. And it's a very sharp, funny, clever riot of a book, which romps across sex, marriage, religion, race, class, gentrification. Honestly, there isn't much that it isn't about. To read it is to be stupefied. I was actually really glad when you recommended this book because I hadn't read it and I hadn't actually read any Zadie Smith, which was like a huge point of shame for me as an English person who claims to actually like books. She's one of those authors that when she comes up in conversation, I sort of go quiet because I feel so embarrassed not to have read her and I don't want to admit it. I just, I, you know, I don't, I don't lie about having read her, but I don't voluntarily offer up that I have never read Zadie Smith. Look, this podcast exists so that we may read the books we have never read, Bobby. No shame here. And anyway, you've read one now, so you don't need to stay silent in conversation. Um, I'm also envious as you have a mostly marvellous canon ahead of you as well. So whilst rereading White Teeth, I was trying to think about what I would equate it to. It feels much bigger than most books written now. It shares, I think, some common grounds with The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer, which is a book I love, and The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen, and a Swedish book that I've just started, an absolute doorstopper called Collected Works, which caused a big splash in its native Sweden when it was published in 2020. And it's being published here next year. And I'll be really interested to see how this enormous family saga does, actually, because we just don't see that many of them at the moment. It's a big book about family, basically, white teeth. And there's an incredible confidence here for someone that's only 22. And in that sense, it doesn't read like a debut. The humour feels so sophisticated. And the way she writes about sex is quite masculine. Even the way she writes about marriage in this world-weary tone, both Clara Jones and Alsana Iqbal tolerate their husbands at best. It's so sharp and funny and wise. And I think her dissemination of the Chalfins is especially good. They're this liberal intellectual family who have, not unlike the Radlets in The Pursuit of Love, actually, a family motto of Chalfinism. And they sort of see Ari Jones and the rebellious Milat Iqbal as their projects. And they go about it in this very well-meaning earnest, patronising, often quite racist way. Here's a clip of Zadie Smith talking about shame and class that I found on YouTube, which I think is quite interesting here. The middle classes are full of shame, kind of self-hating shame. The working class is lower middle class, particularly because they're kind of stuck between two, a rock and a hard place. <laughs> yeah, the shame of not being understood or not being able to make yourself understood is a kind of corrosive type of shame, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting you you mentioned The Corrections because I was really reminded of that book when I was reading it too. It feels like such a product of its time, one of those very big uh, late 90s, early 2000s family sagas. There's loads going on in it. It covers so much ground. But what is your favourite bit? 
generally, I adore the way she writes. It's quite florid, but somehow doesn't feel decorative. The sky is described as monstropolis, which is a word I've never heard of, while Clara's father, Darkus, is described as a odoriferous, moribund, salivating old man entombed in a bug-infested armchair. (laughs) More specifically, I love her pithy descriptions of the various culture clashes. I don't think there are many writers, especially now, who would take on so many different cultures and the way they interact with each other with such kind of breezy confidence. I found the storyline of Samad struggling with the fact that his teenage boys are growing up British deciding to send one of the twins back to Bangladesh because he could only afford to send one. Very affecting. He decides to send Majid, the quiet intellectual twin, back for his teenage years because he thinks that he has the best chance of prospering. And in response, his wife, Alsana, who has no idea that he was essentially kidnapping their son, refuses to give him a straight answer for the entire five years or however long that Majid is away for. So Samad will ask her where the remote control is and she will say, it could be here, it could be there, it could be anywhere. And as soon as he brings Majid home, she starts giving him straight answers again. And when Majid comes home is also fascinating because Samad thinks that he's going to have this common ground with Majid, who's had the same upbringing as Samad does. But this intellectual boy comes back and they have absolutely nothing in common. He has no more in common with Majid than he does with Malat, who is this sex-obsessed, turned, radical fundamentalist. And Zadie writes about how both the boys and Irie gravitate towards the Chalfons for different reasons and how it causes both families to rupture and indeed the Chalfon family itself as their son Joshua tires of his family's obsession with educating and redeeming other people's children. There's a really um, beautiful passage about about Samad sending, uh, you know, deciding to send one of his sons away, um, which I, I think she does these sort of these sections so well. So I, I just wanted to read it. Two sons, one invisible and perfect, frozen at the pleasant age of nine, static in a picture frame, while the television underneath him spewed out all the shit of the 80s. Irish bombs, English riots, transatlantic stalemates, above which mess the child rose untouchable and unstained, elevated to the status of ever-smiling Buddha, imbued with serene Eastern contemplation, capable of anything, a natural leader, a natural Muslim, a natural chief. In short, nothing but an apparition, a ghostly daguerreotype formed from the quicksilver of the father's imagination, preserved by the salt solution of maternal tears. This son stood silent, distant, and was presumed well, like one of Her Majesty's colonial island outposts, stuck in an eternal state of original naivety, perpetual prepubescence. This son Samad could not see, and Samad had long learnt to worship that which he could not see. That's such a good passage. And you just reminded me as well that part of the problem is that he imagines that Majid is going to come back religious and he comes back. Is he atheist or agnostic? Yeah, he's, he's a to- total atheist, I, I think. Um, and I, and yeah, that causes a real a real problem for somebody who sort of pictured him as this pious son of, of, you know, learning the holy ways. And there's a parallel because Clara is raised in this subterranean flat by her single mother, Hortense, who is a devout Jehovah's Witness. And Clara distances herself from both the faith and 
Hortense when she meets Archie, aged just 19. And then Hortense herself has been reared by Ambrosia Bowden in one of the kind of many backstories we get. We get the story of Ambrosia, who was raped as a teenager by the white Captain Durham, Clara's grandfather, who was posted to Jamaica in the early 20th century. And just the really stark, honest way that Zadie writes about racism in the 70s um, really stayed with me. I just want to read a bit of that. Okay, so this is Archie, who is white, talking to his colleague Maureen, who fancies him. Oh, Archie, you are funny, said Maureen sadly, for she had always fancied Archie a bit, but never more than a bit, because of this strange way he had about him, always talking to Pakistanis and Caribbeans, like he didn't even notice. And now he'd gone and married one, and he hadn't even thought it was worth mentioning what colour she was until the office dinner, when she turned up black as anything, and Maureen almost choked on her prawn cocktail. Yeah, it's really, really frank about the way that racism is depicted in the 70s and 80s. Um, and what I found really interesting reading it now is that the, the the sort of time frame between then and when the book was written is about the same as the distance between now and when White Teeth came out. So, you know, it, she is writing about the really recent past there. Obviously, in, in that time, it's one of those books that's been endlessly written about. And now you've, you know, you had reviews at the time, so many of them. Now it's retrospectives, it's on school curriculums. But were there any particular reviews that you really liked or that you, you disagreed with? She got mostly rave reviews. I mean, I think it's on the inside of my copy, just the list of newspapers who you know covered it and raved about it but a few of the reviews did comment on how long it is which I totally agreed with it could have lost at least a quarter of the book I think there was an extensive backstory about Samad and Archie's time during the war which I found unnecessary she's incredible at creating backstories and character Zadie right down to the tiny detail of Clara Bowden having no top teeth when she meets Archie Jones but not everything needs to be deep dived deep divin in the same book but again god she was 20 freaking two i definitely think she she deep dove on uh too much that's it <laughs> i'm actually not sure it is yeah there, there was there was a weird amount like there was so much about the science of of cloning and genetically engineering mice um, I could probably have lost that you know the, the, the stuff that i actually felt like i i could have lost was a lot of the chalf and stuff uh, and the, the the cloning element felt very Dolly the Sheep, which is such a specific moral panic that for me it felt like it really dated the book to a specific era. Yes, all the future mouse stuff with Marcus Chalfin, a geneticist, I definitely glazed over a lot of that. I found the soldier that Archie was meant to have killed who bled tears quite odd. I also found the ending when... Big spoiler hit, big spoiler alert for the next 10 seconds. When Irie has sex with both the twins and then gets pregnant and has the child and never knows who the father is. I find that a bit OTT. I don't think she needed to bone both of them. How do you think it's aged in general? Well, I don't think she'd write this book now. I mean, for starters, her, it was the first thing she wrote. She's now, what was she, 22 when she wrote it. It came out when she was 25 and she's now probably late 40s. Um, her writing's changed a lot. She herself says she can't reread it because... Who wants to read what they wrote when they were 22? Oh, God, not me. I also wonder if some writers, and to be honest, I'd have to go back and read all of her writing to see if that's the case with Zadie. She is 
quite fearless, but a lot of writers would be scared to write outside this much outside of their own experience now. I mean, it's very politicised to do that. I think more would have also been made now of some of the horrific incidences of racism in the book too, like when Ari and Malat visit their neighbour, Mr Hamilton, who goes on this excruciatingly awful racist diatribe. I'm glad she wrote it, but I also think that bits like that flew much more under the radar than now. Like if you read the reviews, they don't dwell very much on the racism that's written about in the book. And so when I came to reread it, I was almost surprised by how much there was because I think that would form much more of the basis of the reviews now. I also think it's interesting rereading it in the context of everything that that would soon come afterwards, you know, 9-11, Brexit, Trump... The Guardian did a retrospective in 2020 where they said the optimism people once saw in this book has curdled. I do sort of agree with that, but but I also feel like it had some really prescient ideas about radicalization specifically in the way that Milat and Joshua both become fundamentalists of different kinds. So it's done quite cleverly because Milat becomes a member of a group called Kevin, which stands for Keepers of the Eternal and Victorious Islamic Nation. Uh, at the same time that Joshua becomes uh, a member of a, a Glasto hippie troupe called Fate, which stands for Fighting Animal Torture and Exploitation. So, you know, they, they go off on these tangents, but, but end up in the same sort of situation, which is an interesting precursor, I think, to, you know, the alt-right and to the idea of radicalisation as, as it is now um, online. Yes, that is a great point. She was so ahead of her time with the incel stuff. Although I would say as well, she doesn't really take Kevin or fate seriously. And I wonder if a writer would be able to not take Kevin specifically seriously now. Also, one thing I found really fascinating is in 1989, Malat and the rest of Kevin travel to London to attend a protest against a writer who they describe as a dirty puppet and a coconut. Zadie doesn't name the writer, but in 1988, Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses came out to huge international furore. There is still a fatwa on him. And of course, Salman was stabbed in August at a literary festival. Reading the book in the context of that incident and horrific news stories about incels such as Elliot Rogers feels, again, much more ominous than I think it would the first time I read it. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, things, the the, the state of the world is, is, is worse to the extent that I expected more of a grim ending just because of everything that was happening. We're so used to how these news stories end up. And I was surprised, I guess, when, when it, I got to the final pages and it almost de- descends into farce instead. I'm kind of glad it descended into farce because, as you say, that's just... I just don't think it's something that people would dare do in a book. Now, I mean, I did find the ending ridiculous. I probably could have lost a lot of it. It was very Shakespearean with everyone crowded into the same space for Marcus Chalfin's Future Mouse Conference and Fate, which includes his very own son Joshua in the audience ready to shoot him in order to tie this entire 30-year saga up with a bow. Although, thinking about it, maybe the book is more Shakespearean than I've given it credit for there is after all this sense of these two brothers almost dueling for their father's affection it gets compared i mean dickensian is a term that is is really Mm. overused in literature but it is very like like dickens in the way that it has all this huge cast of characters with with these sort of caricaturistic lives all all coming together and crossing paths in different ways i think the new republic which 
published possibly the only damning review of the book, described it as excessive storytelling, uh, which is a neat way of putting scenes like that, I think. Yeah, um, I, I just didn't expect it to be so funny um, and, and so humour-oriented. And I think that's probably because my my knowledge of, of Zadie Smith, having not read her, is, is that she's just this huge, serious literary titan and I guess I didn't associate that with with being funny as well I feel like we could have a whole different conversation about how serious literature is often seen at odds with humor oh god it's so funny the way she writes about sex is brilliantly crass and corporeal and actually she's really funny on the hoops that people jump through to reconcile their lives with their religious beliefs like when Samad gives up masturbating and takes up drinking it was a deal a business proposition that he had made with God Samad being the party of the first part God being the sleeping partner <laughs> I think Samad is is done really well because his story is told almost backwards but in, in in so many different fragmented ways that you, you get such a complete picture of him so he is uh, a war hero then he is this sort of waiter in an Indian restaurant who, who really doesn't love his life then he's this put-upon father and then he's having this passionate love affair with with the teacher Poppy Burt Jones I, I, I think Zadie does this amazing job of um bringing all these puzzle pieces together to create really well-rounded characters, even if they are a little bit uh, caricaturistic. I haven't read any of her other books. This is a debut novel. It's probably her most famous book. I'm really interested to know if you think White Teeth is is classic Zadie Smith. Is, is this her defining book? Yes and no. Yes, with its intelligence and boldness and humour and insight, but her later books feel more considered, like less of a tap dance. I actually haven't loved all of her more recent fiction, like Swing Time or her short stories, Grand Union, but I adore her nonfiction. And I would say that she's actually got loads of fans for her nonfiction specifically. I don't even think it's the same person necessarily that reads her fiction and her nonfiction. So Intimations, which is a short collection of essays written during lockdown, is just brilliant. There's an essay about trying to compare suffering, which just nailed the specific friction that existed, especially online during that time. Suffering has an absolute relation to the suffering individual. It cannot be easily mediated by a third term such as privilege. If it could, the CEO's daughter would never starve herself, nor the movie idol ever put a bullet in his own brain. Yeah, that, that, is, that is really good. I also love her writing for the New York Review, particularly the 2010 essay Generation Y. I suggest reading that one, Bobby, and the 2019 one in defence of fiction. And she introduces that piece by talking about the shame she felt in having an inconsistent personality, which I just loved. She's also great on reading. She writes a lot about being a reader and about how reading is simply a sanitised addiction. She often talks both publicly and in her writing. I've watched her on stage many times about how she doesn't understand why reading is held up as this moral pursuit and that other pursuits are somehow lesser or people who don't read are somehow lesser and I couldn't agree more it's it's a choice just like any other so yeah I would say read more of her fiction Bobby but go read her non-fiction as well I'm not a huge reader of non-fiction so I I should so I, I want to read more non-fiction so I'll, I'll seek those out I, I also I'm desperate to read NW 
because it features really strongly in, in Open Water by Caleb Azuma Nelson. And and I think he's just one of the most exciting young British novelists working right now. He he threads his love for NW specifically through Open Water from the very first page. There's this uh, beautiful Zadie Smith quote as the epigraph, which is, uh, there was an inevitability about their road towards one another, which encouraged meandering along the route. I love that. And I, what I love even more is that Zadie Smith actually features as a character in open water in a little cameo and it felt uh <laughs> very meta it's sort of like marvel marvel cinematic universe but for books he wrote about his love for the, that book for what writers read in fact what writers read 35 authors on their favorite book edited by pandora sykes is out now with profits going to the literacy trust sounds hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, let's chat about your book this month, which, pleasingly, I had already read. My book is Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. She is a Japanese author. She is also a huge bestseller in Japan and uh, just about everywhere else. Her books have been translated into 30 languages. Uh, She's been writing since 2005. She's written 11 books in Japan. But only three have been translated into English, the first of which was this one, uh, which was published back in 2016. The blurb at the back of Convenience Store Woman is possibly my favourite blurb of all time. Siaka Murata has won every major literary prize in Japan. Literally, there are none left for her to win. And rightly so, I think. Um, Convenience Store Woman is about a 36-year-old woman named Kiko who works in a convenience store known as a Combini. Uh, She's worked in the same one for 18 years. The convenience store's her life, and being a convenience store worker is all that she wants to be. She doesn't want a partner. She doesn't want a better job. She doesn't want to be a wife or a mother, as, as society expects. She's happy just working this seemingly mundane job. And the world around her won't leave her be, and that's that's sort of the plot of the book. Japan, for all its modernity, is a very heteronormative, traditional society. And Kiko, in the words of her colleague, is triply handicapped as a single virgin convenience store worker. It's so stark and simply written. It's And it's so effective at conveying how exhausting it is for Kiko and single women to be anything other than normal in Japan. Yeah, Sayaka talked about uh, the reason she wanted to write this book in the New York Times. And she said, I wanted to illustrate how odd the people who believe they are ordinary or normal are. They are the so-called normal people. But when you switch the direction of the camera, it is they who appear strange or odd. Yeah, that review is fascinating. There aren't many interviews with her in English, but all of them that are are actually fascinating. She herself worked in a convenience store, which is basically our equivalent. It's like a souped up corner shop. It's like a corner shop plus pret. It's like what Americans call a bodega. Yes. And claim and claim you can only find in New York and this is this is proof that that's not true. <laughs> She's she herself worked in one for many years. She only quit after she'd written I think four books. 
And she has revealed that since childhood, she's been troubled by the intense effort of being, quote unquote, an ordinary earthling. And Earthlings is, of course, the title of one of her other books. She also revealed that she has had 30 imaginary friends since childhood, one of whom she says she is intimate with. So look, I'm not saying that Sayaka is Kiko or any of her other characters, but she's definitely invested in the themes that she's exploring. She also seems to really like leaning into the the idea of Sayaka Murata, which I, I really like. Um, and all, all of her fiction seems to be about, you know, confronting things which humans deem normal. What is normal and why is the norm normal? There's this recurring idea of society eliminating foreign objects. So she pushes back by framing our everyday life as as the foreign object, as something alien. In this book, Kiko goes out of her way to try and be normal, to be a cog in the machine. And there's a section where she talks about how she dresses, which uh, I wanted to read because I think it just absolutely skewers uh, something that, that most of us would probably consider quite normal. Outside work, Mrs. Azumi is rather flashy, but dresses the way normal women in their 30s do. So I take cues from the brand of shoes she wears and the label of the coats in her locker. Once she left her makeup bag lying around in the back room and I took a peek inside and made a note of the cosmetics she uses. People would notice if I copied her exactly, though. So what I do is read blogs by people who wear the same clothes she does and go for the other brands of clothes and kinds of shawls they talk about buying. Mrs. Azumi's clothes, accessories and hairstyles always strike me as the model of what a woman in her 30s should be wearing. It's this mode of survival, isn't it? She mimics the behaviour of her fellow convenience store workers, what they wear, what they dress, and she allows her sister to invent a backstory for her about why she's working in a convenience store, which is that she has a chronic health condition that prevents her from getting a real job. And she even enters into this sham marriage in the hope that it will save her from being exterminated, which is in her own emotionless way, a real concern for Kiko, that if you don't take part in the societal rat race, which Sayaka refers to as the factory in other books, you might get bumped off. Bobby, what was your favourite bit? I think I just I generally just really like the humor she finds in looking at the world in a in a just slightly lateral way. I I I thought the whole thing was really good satire, which is a really hard thing to nail. I've been thinking a lot about this. I don't think it's satire. I think she intends it as commentary, amplified commentary, a sort of distorted hall of mirrors style commentary, but still commentary nonetheless. There's this paragraph in the book which really took my breath away. When you work in a convenience store, people often look down on you for working there. I find this fascinating, and I like to look them in the face when they do this to me. And as I do so, I always think, that is what a human is. I think I think what's interesting is she she gets away with she she doesn't have to say too much about about what she's commenting on or or what she's satirizing, depending which one of us is right. <laughs> um, she she just presents what could what could be a very normal and and quite boring story and and lets you realize almost that everything we do in our society is is weird and strange and 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 so nothing is strange there's this this clarity to her bluntness and to her pure non-conformity which is is used to a really really good comedic effect 
there's a recurring motif where she keeps going. It was the same as when I'd hit that boy with a shovel at school. Uh, <laughs> and she constantly looks at people and thinks about the moisture in their skin or wonders how much of her own moisture is made up of, of water from the convenience store. It's this idea of, of, you know, humans as they're either cogs or they're organisms, but they're never humans. And there, there was one specific bit that really made me laugh out loud and sums up why I love this book so much. And it's this moment that could be really tender that she shares with her baby nephew when she's visiting her sister. She's watching the baby sleep and you think she might be about to have this moment of, of like epiphany, of realising that she is capable of human affection. And then she goes, I stroked my sleeping nephew's cheek with my forefinger. It felt strangely soft, like stroking a blister. <laughs> There's also a bit when her sister is trying to quieten her baby and Kiko muses whilst looking at this big shiny knife that it would be so easy to quiet the child. It's a very dark, unintentional sort of humour, a reflection, I think, of Kiko's extreme pragmatism. You know, why not eat dead budgies when we eat other animals? Why not pull someone's pants down if it makes them shut up? Are there any reviews you particularly agreed or disagreed with? Yeah, it would be so dark if it wasn't so funny. And it's also weirdly heartwarming. I really like this specific review by Katie Waldman in The New Yorker, which talks about the book as being a love story between Kiko and her convenience store. Mm -hmm. That review says, For all the disturbance and oddity in convenience store woman, the book dares the reader to interpret it as a happy story about a woman who has managed to craft her own good life. Murata does not judge her protagonist's path to fulfilment, nor does she spend too much time contemplating what it might mean to find transcendence in such work. It may make readers anxious, but the book itself is tranquil, dreamy even, rooting for its employee store romance from the bottom of its synthetic heart. It's interesting because, you know, so much of this book is obviously about supermarkets, essentially, and I couldn't help but compare it to the other, um, I guess what you could call the other great book about supermarkets, which is White Noise by Don DeLillo. That's sort of a seminal work on, on consumerism and has so many scenes set in uh, harshly lit supermarkets. White Noise, though, by comparison, is, is a pretty heavy book. It's, it's mainly about the fear of death, the futility of modern life, and the supermarket scenes in it are filled with foreboding and this really like lobotomized atmosphere. But Inconvenience Store Woman, the, the store is actually, it, it's a safe space. It, it's comforting for Kiko. It's, it's womb-like and it has its own white noise, which, which she's really scared of, of going away when, when, she, when she's not in the store. So the way it describes everyday life in the store, it, it, it brings that same sense of comfort that Kiko gets. So you find yourself frustrated when the story takes yourself outside of the store. Uh, which is, is I guess, what, what Kiko's feeling when, when she can't be in the one place she wants to be. How has it aged? I think to answer that question, you have to look at um, Sayaka Murata as, as, as an icon, a bit like Zadie Smith, actually, because increasingly, you know, she as, as we said before, she does lean into it, but she is being made into a bit of a myth in real time. She's very often put in that uh, quote-unquote sad girl literature box, books with female protagonists who are often depressed, who act in a way that isn't quite what society expects of young women. These books are always, they're, they're blunt, they're dark, they're darkly funny. And I think this book, since it came out, has has come up time and time again in a lot of articles about books for a uh, sad girl summer. <laughs> um, you always, you always <laughs> see the same titles put together. This, 
is constantly compared to my year of rest and relaxation by Atessa Moshfeg. Obviously, Normal People, Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, Luster by Raven Leilani, and then um, some slightly older books like The Virgin Suicides or, or Girl Interrupted. I don't think this is sad girl lit, though. Slightly dubious tag, that. Kiko isn't depressed. None of Siaka's heroines, strange and anti-conformist as they are, are depressed. I mean, when you think about the protagonist in My Year of Rest and Relaxation, she spends all her time buying snack foods and taking sleeping pills. She wants to be comatose on a sofa. Kiko wants to be part of something, just not the society that everyone else wants to be part of. She wants to be absorbed into the convenience store. She At a molecular level, she wants to be part of the convenience store. And I actually think that's why this book has been heralded by many, without any contribution from Sayaka, I might add, as about a woman on the autistic spectrum. I'd agree that it's not, it's not sad girl. It's actually very joyous. But I do think, like my year of rest and relaxation, it's got a fairly revolutionary attitude to, to rejecting what society expects of young women. So you can see why it's made such an impact and why it's turned her into such a phenomenon. But then it's interesting talking about her in the same conversation as Zadie Smith, because there seems to be this need for the literary world to turn young female novelists into sensations, into the next big thing. And I guess that's, that's quite reductionary. You know, it, it suggests a trend, which suggests a time limit. Uh, until the next one comes along. And I, I'm not entirely sure you do get that with male novelists. I wonder if the big male debut writers of the last few years, like Paul Mendes, Caleb Azuma Nelson, who you mentioned earlier, Douglas Stewart, for instance, feel that pressure. I suspect they do, but they probably aren't boxed in in the same way. I think social media probably does exacerbate it. Um, Earthlings had this really famous cover and, and was and still is all over TikTok in the way that My Year of Rest and Relaxation was too. And Atessa Moshfeg has talked very openly about how certain elements of of that fandom, as, especially through that sad girl prism, make her quite uncomfortable. With her most recent book, Lapvuna, she was almost actively butting up against the reader by being as uh, revolting and uncomfortable and un-Instagram as possible. I think Convenience to Women is quirky, voluntary celibacy literature. Sayaka wrote a 2015 piece for the New York Times titled The Future of Sex Lives in Us All, where she considers a post-sex time where people have sex with fictional characters, not each other. And that reminded me of a story in Life Ceremony, her short story collection, where there's a girl in love with her curtain called Puff. And there's a line in that collection, which I just find so revelatory. Instinct doesn't exist. Morals don't exist. They were just false sensibilities that came from a world that was constantly transforming. And I think that's what Kiko loves about the convenience store is that it's never changing. She doesn't have to keep up with anything other than when the rice balls come in and how she lays them out. Bobby, would you have changed anything? Probably not. I'd, I'd, I'd change very little. Um, if you'd asked me midway through, I'd probably have said get rid of Shiraha, who is uh, Kiko's male colleague. And he's this awful, irritating incel type who's always moaning. You know, in, in Kiko's words, I wanted to hit him with a shovel. Um, but then there's this storyline uh, later on where he moves into Kiko's flat so that she can pretend she's found a mate, found a husband, and therefore get society off her back. So she feeds him and she houses him for free. And you think she's got this awful deal. But the book then does this really clever thing of flipping that on its head by simply talking about Shiraha like he's a pet. Uh, and suddenly it's Kiko who has the power and he's this subservient being who relies on her for, for food and, and protection. 
interestingly, there's actually a short story called Poochie in Life Ceremony as well, which has the same idea of a grown man as a pet, in this case, to two children. And Sayaka almost seems to see this as the ideal setup for a modern human being, you know, being fed, being petted, being protected, not having a job, not having any expectations from society. And, it, you know, it, it does feel like quite a cushy existence. I also saw Pucci as inverting the idea that women or children are the dependents and that men should be the ones to run society. So Pucci basically asks, why should adults dictate what children wear and eat and where they sleep? You know, why isn't it the other way around? It's funny as well because Pucci's, I feel, I feel like he's always wearing a business suit and a tie. Yeah, he is, but then yeah. he's sort of like begging for food. It's a really creepy, creepy setup. The only thing I would change, and I would say this is a symptom of all of her books that I have read, is that it's repetitive. Twice we have an almost identical replica of a monologue by Shiraha about how Japan is like the Stone Age with its expectations of marriage and procreation. And then when I, when I went on to read the other two books that she's published in English, I did feel like this whole idea of society as a factory and her idea, her kind of post-sex ideas are a bit overdone. Would you say this book is classic Sayaka Murata? Because I wouldn't, actually. I know what you mean. Some of her comments on, on society, you know, with a capital S, do seem a bit on the nose, especially in Life Ceremony, which leans a lot more sci-fi. I think in all of her books, you get those ideas of social norms as bizarre, of asexuality or atypical sexuality, of the mundane pressures of modern life. But Earthlings and Life Ceremony, they take those ideas of taboo and, and what is normal to like the most extreme extreme. So they're, they're full of, you know, incest, cannibalism, and and frankly, you know, even weirder stuff than that. The ending of Earthlings is 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 hilarious, but but horrifying. And you know, life ceremony opens with a story about people who wear jumpers made of human hair and jewelry made out of human teeth, have lampshades made out of dried stomachs. Yeah, so in that respect, I think this one's a bit more toned down. As her translator, Ginny Tapley Takamori puts it, she has an eye for the grotesque. And my God, some of those scenes of what has been described as sensual cannibalism made my stomach churn. And I have to say, even you just talking about the stomach lampshades, then I, I don't think I could read it again. The title story of Life Ceremony. I, it just revolted <laughs> me so much. I, I really, I was, I, you know, my eyes would like bulging with how horrible how horrible I was finding it to read and and yeah in that respect you know we we can only compare these these three books of hers which have been translated into English and out of the three convenience store woman is is the outlier because it's so much less weird and it's 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 sweeter you know it, it's it's less affronting I guess it's cuter than her other books. And I think Granta was smart to publish this one first. And she actually said something quite interesting in an interview about Earthlings, which, as you say, is much weirder and came afterwards in English. The people who know me for convenience store women are disappointed, but I was a cult writer before that success. People are saying that the old Murata has returned. See, Earthlings is, is my favourite of the three because it's just one of the weirdest books I've ever read. And I just, I loved it for that. Now that you've read all three, are you a Murata super fan? Will you be first in line when the next uh, the next book comes out? I will buy it, but I would be happy if the next one had no cannibalism in it. That's it for today and for this month. 
we would love to hear from you and you can email any thoughts you have to bookchatpod at gmail.com otherwise we will be back in your ears on the 1st of February our books for February's episode are Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte yes Bobby is making me reread that and Orlando by Virginia Woolf I for one am so excited Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer with sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes. See you next month. Not if I see you first. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.